David, the New York Times has unveiled a feature where you can see how people with your first name voted in this year's presidential election. What I want to know is, should we be concerned about the preferences of Brian and <laughs> David? Uh, I, if, my, if memory recalls, hold on. Yeah, Brian Brian was right up there with Jason in terms of uh, being pro-Trump. Um, Uh-oh. Now, wait, how is Brian spelled? Well, though? it's Brian spelled with an I, so I don't uh, know if I get I don't know. Count. You don't count that? No, that's fake Brian. Apparently, I had no idea that Brian was such a Generation X name. Now look, I'm looking at David here. Fifty-one forty-nine Trump. Wow, David, you are a swing voter. <laughs> Thank God. Finally, my vote matters. This is what <laughs> I've been my whole life. I've been waiting. My whole adult life, I've been waiting for this moment. It's going to shock press box listeners that David is fifty-one percent Donald Trump. We <laughs> heard some of his memorable rants during the Democratic <laughs> primaries. Uh, I think David's choice was a little easier than that. Any other names, David, that stick out? Patricia, Barbara, Karen? They, they yeah, we're not going to be Karen. the first people to make the Karen joke, but there's been a lot of like uh, like Twitter, okay, you can apologize now from various <laughs> Karens um, online. 60% Biden for Karen, 40% Trump. Uh, we'll do Chris, uh, Erica, and Steve a little later to get the true meaning of those names. But coming up on today's show, an election night preview. What the hell happened with that Atlantic used sports story? Plus the New York Times' Mark Leibovich. That and more in the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. David, let us rifle through the big news from the weekend. Looks like the Trump campaign has entered its we're going to steal the election in the courts. Yeah, we're just going to come out and say it phase. Here's Trump on the tarmac in Hickory, North Carolina. And I think it's terrible when we can't know the results of an election the night of the election in a modern day age of computer. A modern day age of computer. Does that sound to you like someone who possesses a high degree of technological sophistication. I know, but I will say that in his statement uh, slash confession about their post-election <laughs> plans, Trump did seem to be, I mean, listen, as someone who's been paying attention to most of the words this man has said for the past several years, he did seem to be more engaged and more uh, uh, um, interested in the plan than in a lot of the things he talks about. So you might not understand the age of computer, but I think, you know, he has been engaged in some fairly serious conversations of, about, you know, challenging the vote counting. Yeah. So you're saying you're saying it, the whole idea of winning the election in the courts rather than at the ballot box has made Trump pay attention like he might not have in some time to the presidency. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's something. Let's run the tape a little more. Here is Trump talking about his plans on election night. Now, I don't know if that's going to be changed. Because we're going to go in the night of, as soon as that election's over, we're going in with our lawyers. I don't know if that sounds like a campaign that thinks it's winning the presidential election. No. I mean, <laughs> it obviously does not. It obviously does not. Let me just let, uh, that's my formal statement. I guess a couple of minor quibbles, though. One, he's under the impression that the election ends at, what, the stroke of eight o'clock? on Tuesday night. So there's already some, whether or not he believes he's winning it, he's already operating under some, you know, very specific 
rule of law there. And 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 I think more significantly, I, I mean, I don't know if this is important or not for what actually happens, but it does seem like he kind of believes it, right? It seems, it seems like he kind of believes that it's his responsibility to challenge the veracity of the vote. I mean, I don't think it, it's not. And I don't know if I don't know how one defines the degree to which Trump believes things and how that reflects on reality. But um, you know, he's convicted of this. He'll, I guess that's a loaded term in the next couple of months. But he's, I mean, he does seem to believe it's true. Well, was he was he ready to go to court when he won the election in 2016 and say, I I just want to make sure that there are no missing Hillary ballots that could put her over the top in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania? <laughs> no. I'm not sure that he realizes that votes even in that election were counted beyond eight o'clock on, on Tuesday night. And and also, I don't think that, well, frankly, I mean, again, this goes back to the concept of Trump and reality. He, he, I don't know if he believe, believes that he won that vote by a, by a historical landslide in so much as he believes anything. I think that that falls into that category and that's utter nonsense too. So who knows? Without getting too deep into Trump's mind, I do read this whole election is one through the courts thing as classic Trumpian up is down, black is white. I don't know if you saw Jason Miller on this week, but, but his whole bit looking into the camera with a straight face was if we're in the lead on election night, we're not letting the Democrats do their shenanigans in the court. The Democrats, right? This is, this is not the party that is challenging a hundred thousand plus votes in Houston from that drive-through voting facility down there. This is not the the party that is filing all these preemptive challenges across the country about mail-in ballots that arrive at certain times. It's the Democrats who might steal this election in the courts. Now, notice he's not he's not just talking about election fraud, which is a usual Republican smokescreen. He's actually saying that the Democrats are the ones who are doing what the Trump campaign and the Republicans are clearly doing. Yeah. I don't think that I don't think I mean the, the logic doesn't have to hold. If you want if you want to if you want to take it down to sort of brass tacks, I think that probably they could in a very tortured sort of way tie everything back to the to the fabulous meaning untrue thesis that in the intervene in the period between you know close of polls on Tuesday and whenever the vote the vote is certified the democrats democratic operatives will be just be like dumping fake ballots into the bin, right? I mean that's that's, I think, like the very core untrue conspiracy. I'm making pains to say untrue. That's the that is the core lie of all of this. They could probably tie it all back to eventually. But yeah, I mean, I think everything beyond that is just trying to just just put up a, a smokescreen to no particular end, other than just like no. we're, they're they're going to scrap for it in the courts, right? I mean, they're they're just gonna they're gonna pretend that they won, and and the argument is sort of TBA. There was more news from the dying embers of the 2020 campaign in Opelika, Florida last night. Trump hinted that he will fire Dr. Anthony Fauci. Here's what happens November 4th. You won't hear too much about it. You won't hear too much about it. Don't tell anybody, but let me wait till a little bit after the election. There is some true 90 chess going on <laughs> when Trump is saying, here is my secret plan at a rally that is clearly on television. And also talking about something that he cannot 
legally do, <laughs> which is fire a civil servant like Anthony Fauci. I don't. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this sort of goes the whole, we're going to get in there with our lawyers right after. He said we're going to get in there with our lawyers right after, uh, I mean, as soon as the, the election is over, quote unquote, I mean, I guess as soon as the polls close. Uh, I think in that speech or in another recent speech, he talked about how he had good, good, he had good lawyers four years ago. Uh, I guess in comparison, I guess he's talking about Bill Barr, but uh, I'm sure that his current, you know, legal team probably doesn't, isn't too happy about that sort of comment. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, the, these are he's just giving the game away, right? There's like I understand playing to the crowd, but there's literally no reason to not fire Tony Fauci now if you're going to talk about firing him now, right? <laughs> right? Like whatever positive you you reap from not saying it, you've like it's it's double negative, whatever. I mean, it's it's even worse than it would have been to fire him because you don't even really rev up the base. And you've just made people super freaked out who, who are the people you're trying to, I guess, shield from that sort of, you know, move. Yeah, it, that that whole moment may be better identified with the Trump gives the crowd what they want moment. Like when they when they start chanting, lock him up or lock her up. And he's like, sure, I'm going to lock them all up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rather than the my secret plan out loud. Those are kind of actually two distinct <laughs> Trump rhetorical moves. <laughs> that may have actually fused into one in that case. Also, David, just coincidentally, recently I was reading a Harlan Ellison story, an old Harlan Ellison sci-fi story about how there was this like futuristic highway and you were driving down the highway and everybody was trying to run each other off the road and kill each other. It was like a death race kind of thing. W well, guess what? That story weirdly intervened with the 2020 campaign because on Friday in our home state of Texas, Trump supporters surrounded a Biden campaign bus, causing it to slow down uh, and causing the people on the bus to call the police. In New York and New Jersey, <laughs> Trump supporters tied up the ma tied up major highways, uh, including a bridge in New York. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, I've lost my New York geographical sense. The Texas incident uh, caused Biden to cancel multiple campaign events. Apparently, the FBI is also investigating. What do we make of death race, campaign race? Uh, I don't even know. I mean, listen, I just feel like this is a, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We're either going to look back at this sort of stuff and well, we'll probably forget a lot of it, but it's either going to feel a whole lot like, like, you know, the, the coming of the apocalypse or alternatively like a last gasp. I mean, this is, you know, people acting out in a, in a, at a moment when things feel incredibly, I mean, we all feel like on edge, right? Everything feels very tense. Sure. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, the, the, the thing in Texas is just sort of despicable. I mean, blocking streets, you know, I'm sure that put a lot of people out, but and and certainly some tragedy can result from that, but that's just sort of juvenile in some ways, you know, especially as it played out specifically in this case. Um, I mean, we're talking about the Mario Cuomo bridge, you know, I mean, this isn't like, you know, attacking a specific, any specific set of lefty voter or whatever. It's just, a, it's just a bizarre move. But, um, you know, the thing in Texas is just, I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty scary, you know? I mean, they would see, a, they would see a Biden bus and say, you know, Let's get them out of our town, especially when their town, you know, 
is not going to come is not a pro Trump town. So, you know, it's it's just a very very sad state of affairs. We mentioned on the last show that there is a campaign journalism tradition unlike any other, which is the eleventh hour scare the shit out of liberal story. I remembered. That back in October 2008, and I looked this up, George Packer wrote a New Yorker story about going to Ohio and how tough it was going to be for Obama to win Ohio. And I just remember every liberal in my life coming to me and be like, did you read that New Yorker story? Oh, my God. Obama, PS, won Ohio twice. This week's entry into this genre, the Seltzer Poll of Iowa, the gold standard so-called poll of that state, finds that Donald Trump is leading Biden 48% to 41%. Republican Senator Joni Ernst leading her challenger, Teresa Greenfield, 46% to 42%. I was not particularly important to Joe Biden, or at least it's down the list. That Senate seat certainly is important to the Democrats retaking uh, that chamber. But man, did you see the Twitter panic? Just any bad news. The polling could be overwhelmingly solid to great for Joe Biden. In any bad news, everybody just loses their mind. Rarely have I seen, even, even that we predicted it, like we talked about it last time. I mean, yeah, rarely have I seen a, a kind of a Twitter freakout of that level, even, you know, during the Trump years. It was just everything. I mean, the, the poll was maybe an outlier and, you know, maybe will prove to be right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, everybody was just, Whatever the the anxiety version of waiting, to, the opposite of waiting to exhale uh, is, they were that they, all of all of everyone's anxieties got put into that one one little poll in Iowa. It brings us to this whole idea that we got asked about previously and got asked about again this week, which is how does one best watch the returns on election night? And I've got a few more ideas on that. One is don't get too crazy here, right? You do not need to start particularly early on election night. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. Polls are closing at 6 p.m. in Kentucky and Indiana. And I think a lot of people get on cable news way too early. You can just take a deep breath. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a big night. Go to dinner. Go to dinner. Sit right? outside. Keep, keep, keep your phone. The other thing is, I would just treat cable news on election night a lot like David and I probably treat pregame shows for sporting events. Like I don't watch a ton of pregame shows anymore, but I do watch ESPN's college game day on a Saturday morning. And let me tell you, if I see a feature story coming that involves a quarterback and a deadly disease or any kind of heart tugging feature story, that's a no for me, dog. I am, I'm going to the mute button. I'm going to do something else. And then when I comes back and I see Kirk Herbstreet talking about the game that's about, oh, uh, I got to go to the mute. You should take exactly that approach with election night TV. If it's, if Rick Santorum is on television, yep, we're, we're going volume down right now. We're going to go look at Dave Wasserman's Twitter feed to see if anything new is on there. That's a wall of sound that lasts for hours and hours is a truly, truly bad idea. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, but but again, you know, I guess we're giving people advice on how to watch. That's, yeah, that's what we're that's here That's what for. people are trained to watch, though, right? The, I mean, uh, Rick Santorum, give or take a Santorum, I guess I'll say. <laughs> Although he will inevitably be there in a, in a prominent role, in a prominent seat. But you know, I mean, I was I was I was thinking the other day, trying to flipping back and forth between cable news channels. I was wondering if what would happen. 
I mean, I don't know what would happen year round, but what happened on election night if there were just a fourth cable news channel that was just the data channel? If there was a channel that was just <laughs> live from the 538 bullpen, you uh -huh. know, and, it, and people just literally crunching numbers in real time, speaking almost in Latin, you know, with that, I mean, I, I feel like on a night like election night, a lot of people we know would be on that channel. In theory, yes. But this does remind me of whenever they do those analytics broadcasts of baseball <laughs> right. games and everybody's like, you know what? I don't want those crummy announcers who don't know anything. I want my favorite statisticians. Yeah, you kind of do want the announcers. Right. So, I mean, so taking it back, I mean, we're, we're opting for Santorum here. No, well, <laughs> we're opting for the mute button is what okay. we're opting. All we're right, opting, that's fine. We're opting for some, right? Jake Tapper on screen? Okay. Brian Williams, you know, throwing a screen pass to Steve Kornacki? Okay. I'm interested. But once we go to pundit corner, especially like third-tier pundit corner, I'm out. I'm gone. And by the way, our listener Ethan Glor sends us this, the official tweet that MSNBC sent out about its election night coverage. Steve Kornacki listed as the number one name ahead of Rachel Maddow, Brian Williams, Joy Reid, Nicole Wallace. Read into that what you will, but the number crunchers will be in charge on Tuesday night. David, I've got some election night prop bets. Would you be interested in helping me figure these out? All right. These are all based on the idea that Donald Trump will lose the election. Not because that's definitely going to happen, but because I think we understand what's going to happen if Joe Biden loses the election. It's going to be extremely conventional. He's going to call Donald Trump. He's going to concede. He's going to go out and give a speech and say, we, we ran a great race, but we didn't get there. But if Biden loses, will Donald Trump concede the election? I saw somebody say, somebody on Twitter raised this. And, I, and the, I mean, the question was basically like, just imagine how it would reflect on Trump if he, if he lost and just conceded calmly. I mean, if that would think of all like the, the, the re, the kind of the rereading of the Trump presidency that would occur if Trump just kind of defied our expectations in defeat. Um, but what, but, but will he, would he, I mean, so that, that's probably would never happen. Will he concede at all? I mean, my instinct is to say he wouldn't and not that he wouldn't concede in writing that somebody would write something out, but would he get up on stage and concede? you know, I, I think he's more likely to, to concede, but not speak to move it to the second one than to speak and not concede. But maybe but that's just me. So he's having his party in the East Room of the White House. And that's what I was going to ask you. Will we hear from Trump on stage in some form that is not a concession? I mean, I kind of feel like it's neither here nor there. I kind of feel like if it's if we're if he's if he's losing, they'll probably pick the best moment of the night for him to get up on stage and not and well, yeah, maybe and say something, not concede, but it would be too early to concede, right? Um the oh God, this is, Trump makes everything so hard for prop bets. I feel like the only guiding, I mean, the, the, the closest guiding parallel we have to guide us on this is weirdly four years ago when he gave up, to, when he got up to give an acceptance speech, seemingly unprepared to give it a, to, to, to have won, right? Like, it, like everyone joked, but yeah. I think legitimately at the time that he didn't want to be there accepting, but he got up there and did his job. He was shocked. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, maybe there's a, you know, who knows? Maybe there's a, maybe there's a degree of shock that will kind of knock him right. Uh, it's really, really hard to predict. If I had to guess, 
But if he speaks at like seven, if he speaks at like seven o'clock when the vote, when like none, when it's just the, the polls are turning against him, but there's no, there'd be no reason to concede. Does that count as speaking and not conceding? Yes. Okay. Yes. Then, then yes, he will speak and not concede. And there is a non-Trump political move, right? Where you come out a little bit early and say, the votes are still being counted. Mm -hmm. But I just want to thank everybody. Usually do you do that during a primary when there's going to be another primary in a week? Mm -hmm. But I guess Donald Trump could do some version of that and just commandeer the airwaves for 30 minutes or an hour. Every 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 election, but but particularly I feel like in the Democratic primary this 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 cycle, there was a lot of kind of strum and drawing about people speaking over other people, people giving <laughs> giving their concession speeches over the time when it was expected the winner would be giving their acceptance speech. What if Trump just waits for Biden to go up on stage and then just like runs out in front of the cameras and starts talking? <laughs> it would be absolutely incredible. That needs to be its own separate prop bet. Will Trump speak while Biden is speaking under any circumstances? Let me give you another one, David. If Trump loses, will he call Joe Biden? Um, this can be at any point. It feels like a no. It feels like a no. Although I kind of can imagine him conceding on stage more than I can imagine him calling Joe Biden and saying, great uh, job, Joe. Congratulations on beating me. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess it depends. I mean, if he's like, if, if he's not, it depends on to what degree the battle is still being pitched. I mean, he might be, he might just be sort of ready to resume a normal life, in which case, you know, playing to both sides of the, you know, you know, the politics doesn't have to be the most central aspect of his, of his humanity. I, I don't know. It feels like a no, though. Will Trump call Joe Biden before he calls Sean Hannity or Fox and Friends? <laughs> no. <laughs> Absolutely not. So that's my, kind of a related question. If not on stage on election night, when will we first hear Trump's voice after the result is announced? On Hannity? On Fox and Friends the next morning or in some other venue? Oh, man. Um, I think if things are going... I think if things are going badly, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was on Fox News late at night or that evening, you know, t tomorrow evening. Um, but, but, it, but Fox and Friends or whatever, I mean, maybe it's a, you know, Hannity exclusive during Fox and Friends or something. That feels like the... The, uh, the time, the, the, the conventional time for him to get out there and start bloviating. Not to spoil the Mark Leibovich interview that's coming up later on this podcast, but he has a great one, which is what kind of odds could we get that George W. Bush calls Joe Biden? George W. Bush, who's been conspicuously quiet. We know he doesn't like Trump, but he has not said anything about this election. Mm -hmm. That George W. calls Joe Biden and says congratulations before Donald Trump calls Joe Biden. <laughs> well, I think with enough passage of time, that's sort of inevitable, right? Uh huh. Pretty great, though, right? That is that's a, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, you know, not to get us too off track here, but you talked a little bit earlier about the liberal freakout stuff, and the thing that was sort of doing a low key freakout in some corners today was this five thirty eight poll that I believe that I believe the economists duplicated themselves. I mean, they did, did their own thing, where it's basically like if Biden's chances of winning if he wins Pennsylvania, each state, given that he wins or loses Pennsylvania. Did you see this? So basically, it's like if he wins Pennsylvania, he has a 99% chance of winning Minnesota and Michigan, 98 Wisconsin, then those drop to 76, 73, 66 if he loses Pennsylvania. And listen, this is a, this is not some like, direct, you know, this is not some A-B thing, right? I mean, obviously, it's, it's, it's basically saying if the, if we're this wrong on the polls, then here's how wrong we could be about the rest of the country. We're all freaking out about it. But 
I feel like I feel like it's all I mean that that Trump's entire night is going to be built around Pennsylvania returns. And I feel like a lot of our viewing, I mean, is going to be built around Pennsylvania returns. And and, you know, I'm 15 feet away from Pennsylvania over here. I mean, it's I would not I would not suggest that walking around you know, putting your boots on the ground is going to do any favors over there. We've been reading enough of that. But it's it is a it is a deeply divided place. And um, it's a the, the tabulation is going to be it's going to be a mess. So I, I have I, I think everything is going to be related to that unless it's just a landslide one way or the other. You might say that David can see Pennsylvania from his front porch. <laughs> no, but if I stand on my roof and crane my neck. <laughs> you know what I think of that like second order number crunching about if he loses Pennsylvania, if he wins Pennsylvania. That to me is the heart tugging feature story on game day. Mute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm out. Thank you very much for that. Couple more prop bets for you, David. What is the earliest point in the night that Donald Trump will allege voter fraud in any forum? Oh man. Well, himself or any or a Donald Trump? No, it has to be Trump himself. I guess it I guess it kind of depends on when we start. Let's start at 6 p.m. Eastern with polls closing in Kentucky to be the earliest he could possibly do it. I think that if the if, if internal polling looks bad, if they're gearing up for a court fight, I don't think there's no time that's too early. As soon as some conspiratorial tweet comes across his iPhone, I think he'll just hit the retweet button or, or the double retweet now, I guess, whatever whatever you have to do. I think that I, I don't think I think that he could legitimately be putting out conspiracy theories about ballots being found in the garbage at like 6.01 p.m. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's it's just it's all it's going to be really early. It's just how early do you want to go? Because Donald mm -hmm. Trump could just be distracted by something on Fox for 15 minutes. Sure. And it could be 6.18 p.m. Who will be the Trump sacrificial lamb spokesman who is offered to CNN and the mainstream networks <laughs> during the night? Can I get a Hogan Gidley? <laughs> Can I get a Kaylee back at 80? Oh Who, who's gosh. going out there to spin the returns for Trump? Hogan Gibley never does well, but he, but he <laughs> no. never, but, but he doesn't, but he's, you know, he, he's never like, he doesn't see, he doesn't feel necessarily like a sacrificial lamb whenever he walks out there. Can you imagine, by the way, I'm sorry to keep going backwards on this, but please, can you, can you imagine being the booker for the Sunday news show? And they're like, hey, can the Trump campaign give us a high-level spokesman or a spokesperson? We really want to get some with name recognition. They're like, yes, you can have Jason Miller. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a fail on so many levels. Oh my God. Yeah. Um I think at least Jason some of the other Trump people will come and yell at you. He's just yeah. boring too, in addition uh, to just telling whoppers. Yeah. I mean, Jason Miller's gonna be out there. I, I have no idea. Uh I think Hogan's a good one. I think Hogan's a good one, but it's a, it's a that's a tough one to place to place a bet on. This may be my favorite. If Trump loses the election and refuses to concede, who is the first big name Republican who will hustle in front of a television camera <laughs> and tell the world Joe Biden has won, the election's over, we need to move on. Oh man, it's going to be a freaking race. I was watching MSNBC for a second yesterday morning and it was Joy Reid's show, but it was, I guess Jonathan Martin was guest hosting and they had a panel of like former Trump administration names. And it was, who is it from the State Department? The woman from the State Department, I always forget her name. Anyway, it was, it was one, it was one State Department, former, uh, former person, uh, former notable. And then uh, Mooch and Omarosa were the other two, and I was just like, <laughs> I don't this? know if this is if this is a, just a ridiculous indictment of MSNBC or just another indictment of the Trump administration. That this is 
this is the, what they were working with. But um, all that is to say, you know, when Omarosa is ready to, to, to jump ship, I'm sure everybody else is going to do it just as quickly after the election. All right, she doesn't count though. But no, she's no, no, just, I know she doesn't count. I'm saying, you know, if, if you have Mooch and Omarosa are already like take, like eagerly accepting MSNBC invites. Um, listen, I don't think that. Man, I mean, who are the obvious ones here? So I, I don't, I don't even know if we should count Mitt Romney. I don't think he's. I think he has too much. I think he has too much poise, too much sort of dignity to to try to seem like he's rushing out there. Mitch McConnell would be a fascinating one on Fox oh, yeah. News because he's going to keep working. You've got Amy Coney Barrett. He's gotten what he wanted out of Trump. There, there's a real good chance that he just says, "You know what? I have, I have squeezed all the juice from this orange, no pun intended, and we're done here. And we can move on. I'll go back to the opposition." What is the earliest we could possibly? And please don't count that as a. This is a jinx. What is the earliest we could possibly be relatively assured of a Trump loss? And Will voting still be going on in any contested Republican districts at that point in time? Like, like Lindsey Grant, like South Carolina is going to be, the polls will be closed by the time that we can feel, I feel like by the time we're comfortable with a Trump loss, but I could totally see if he were on the West Coast, I could see Lindsey Graham rushing in front of a microphone to disown Trump the moment, like at, at, at 8.05 p.m. if the people were still voting on the, you know, in his district. And this is supposing if Lindsey Graham wins the election for himself or he's trying to get more votes in South Carolina. Yes, I'm saying if South Carolina were a specific <laughs> island, I could totally see him oh, out there I at 8.05 Eastern time saying, yeah, we never liked Trump anyway. Please yeah. keep voting. I don't know if there's any West Coast equivalent of that. But I, but but yeah, I mean, it's that's an interesting one. Uh, I don't I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think I think. They've got so many Senate races. They're so tethered to Trump for, for every race that's going on. It'll be really difficult to, to move on that quickly. But Mitch McConnell is not a bad guess for first person to sort of publicly move on. Last one for you, David. Will the never-Trumper members of the Lincoln Project be excommunicated from the left immediately after a Biden win, or will we wait 30 minutes? I don't think the left's going to have to excommunicate them because I think within like 15 minutes, they'll already be signed up to like the John Huntsman for president campaign or whatever, like their version of Republicanism is going to be next, right? They're going to self-deport. Yeah, saying. they're going <laughs> to. Yes, they will self-deport back to Mitt Romney Island. <laughs> all right. It's time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. Our friend Guy Degata asks us a question, David. What do you predict will be the overworked Twitter jokes if Biden wins the election or if Trump wins the election? Oh man, I should have workshopped this before we came on the air. Now we know if Trump wins, number one with a bullet is going to be you're fired. Yeah. There is there's that, 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 that Twitter should almost suspend people the moment they do the you're fired tweet. Uh, we also got one from Zach Silva. I think he was more talking about Trump and COVID back when that was happening. But <laughs> we are living in unprecedented times, <laughs> yes. which kind of ties nicely back to the whole uh, pandemic thing. I don't, there's a lot of yard signs over here in my blue neighborhood that just say, by Don, have you seen these? Yes. The B Y E comma D O N. Uh, I feel like there's something. I feel like I feel like that's gonna appear on Twitter as if from the you know people think they they created it in real time. Um, if if Biden wins, that is, I don't know. 
What is it? What, what is it? What is the what is the overworked emoji of the night if Biden and Trump win, respectively? I don't even want to contemplate that. I tell you <laughs> what, let's open this up for our listeners at the press box pod. Send us your predictions for most overworked Twitter jokes if Biden wins or if Trump wins. We will put them up tomorrow before the returns come in. And best and and, and best gift memes too. I want to see what gifts become the overworked gifts. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> As just the person who's going to be sorting through these, how dare you suggest that? David, some sad news from the sports world. Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence, the overwhelmingly likely number one pick in the NFL draft, has tested positive for COVID-19. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, man, he really doesn't want to play for the Jets. <laughs> Thanks to Thomas Sena. And finally, David, a truly amazing headline from the BBC. I am assured that this is real. Russian oligarch nicknamed the Sausage King killed in sauna with crossbow. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> new this morning. It was an overworked Twitter. <laughs> Chris, wait, wait, quick pause, quick pause. Chris, sorry, are you sorry. googling this right now? Are you? <laughs> I just saw Chris's cursor highlighted on the Google Doc, and I just said, "Okay, Chris, Chris is definitely looking for a photo, as I will be doing right now too." It was an overworked Twitter joke to reference this clip from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Is there a problem? You're Abe Froman. That's right. I'm Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago. Thanks to Derek Berg, Mitchell Tyler, and So Far So Bad. I did not put that reference together no. until a bunch of people sent it to us. If you added watch Ferris Bueller to our things to do <laughs> when the election's over list, if it is in fact ever over, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. David, it's time for the notebook dump. And Andy Lopez... One of our listeners has asked us to talk about the Atlantic Ruth Shalit story. So, in mid-October, the Atlantic published a story online that also appeared in the print magazine in November. It was about rich parents who pushed their children to succeed in sports like fencing in order to get them into elite colleges. It was a typically wacky story with details about families from Greenwich, Connecticut to Palm Beach, importing squash coaches and building ice hockey rinks in their backyards. There was just one problem. Many of the details in the story were not true. And I got to give credit to Josh Levine of Slate here, who not only talked about this on his podcast, but called me up immediately upon reading this story and said, does this seem kind of off to you? On Friday, David, The Atlantic published a nearly 800-word editor's note. By the way, when, you're, when your editor's note becomes column length... <laughs> It's probably just time to pull the plug on. Uh, yeah, as someone who read this on his phone, when when there are embed when embedded ads start materializing in the <laughs> middle of the editor's note, <laughs> that's kind of a problem. Yeah, that might be a little bit too much. Would you like to continue on to page two? <laughs> the editor's note informed readers that the magazine was quote deceived by the story's author. Now the author was listed as Ruth S. Barrett. On Sunday, The Atlantic retracted the whole piece, writing, quote, we cannot attest to the trustworthiness and credibility of the author, and therefore we cannot attest to the veracity of the article. We can go through some of the deceptions if you want to, but a big part of the editor's note was Ruth S. Barrett is, in fact, the married name of Ruth Shalit. And if you go back in journalism time to the 90s, 
Ruth Shalit was a young star writer at the New Republic. She was also writing for GQ, and she was accused of plagiarism. Now this article has been retracted in its entirety. What do you make of this whole business, David? Oh God, uh, this is a this is this is this is a tough one. I mean, it's not a tough one in the sense that like they shouldn't have published the piece without doing more work. I mean, generally, like I'm gonna be. I'm, I'm sort of the last one to ever say out loud like that someone should be, the journalist, writer should be fired for a lapse in journalistic ethics because again, this is one of those things that like is a cudgel used against the field of journalism more so than it is necessary. And also journalists sort of like create that sort of paradigm themselves, right? With the sort of like weird, you know, glorification of the art form um, by some. But I'm the, like I said, I start off by saying I'm the last person to ever say someone should get fired for their job. And I'm not going to say that, but I think you and all you and I would both agree that if this were if she were like a staff writer, that this is a fireable offense. Right. I mean, the, or at least some of the stuff that she did at the New Republic, those were certainly fireable offenses. For I think an editor I think there. this would have been. Yes, this one yeah, too, and, on and its own. I think that from the Atlantic's point of view, I mean, the Atlantic's a big operation. And 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 I think you and I can both be some sort, sort of like abstractly sympathetic to you know, that the people who were probably writing that editor's note are probably may or may not have been intimately involved with the process of even assigning the piece. But I think there has to be a kind of a rule across the board that if someone who's accused of plagiarism or other journalistic, I mean, they always say it's the plagiarism. There's also this Washington Post, you know, the piece about the Washington Post that is sort of roped in, in, in sort of vague terms. But, but let's just say plagiarism, anyone with the history of journalistic error, problems, whatever else, gives you a pitch letter. And uh, I mean, the pitch letter has to include the term, the phrase you'll never believe because that's exactly what this piece is about, right? When, if, when, someone's, <laughs> when someone with sort of history is saying you'll never believe it, then maybe that you should just say no, you know? I mean, maybe, maybe we should just give it a pause. But I, with the backstory that it came with, Ruth Shalit's backstory, which we both remember, which we all, you know, we remember well, um, it does sort of blur together with some of the other you know, greatest hits of the New Republic um, throughout the mm -hmm. years. But uh, when someone with that backstory comes in there and, and it's in the Atlantic and a big name periodical and now they're retracting it and there's errors in it, I frankly expected the story to be bigger than a, than a source fabulous, you know, creating a son. And and trust me, I understand why it's more, why, what, the, what the issue is here. But I, I thought it'd be bigger than a, a made up son and, and calling a, giant ice hockey rank Olympic size when it was not technically Olympic sized. Is that, was there, was there more to it that I'm missing? Well, I think so. So if I'm, stop me if I'm not explaining this correctly, but there was a source in the story and the source said in the story that she had a son. She did not, in fact, have a son. So the Atlantic writes in their editor's note, when we asked Barrett about these allegations, she initially denied them, saying that Sloan had told her she had a son and that she had believed Sloan, a.k.a. her source misled her in some way. The next day, when we questioned her again, she admitted that she was complicit in compounding the deception and that, quote, it would not be fair to Sloan to blame her alone for deceiving the Atlantic. Barrett denies that the invention of the sun was her idea and denies advising Sloan to mislead the Atlantic's fact checkers, but told us, quote, on some level... I, I did know that it was BS, end quote, and, quote again, I do take responsibility. This, first of all, that is, I can be very sympathetic to 
what Ruth S. Barrett, Ruth Shirley Barrett said at, at the end, that's exactly how I would lie too. You know, you just, you admit to a very small part of reality and, 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 and hope that you get off, with, you get off scot-free. It doesn't usually help things though. I just think that, I think that the, I guess, I guess my, my, the, what I'm taking exception to is not that the story should, should be accepted. It's just that from the very beginning, it felt like the Atlantic was, was justifiably concerned that the entire story was BS and they had to like kind of work out whether or not that was true in real time. It almost, it seemed like the, it almost felt like it would have been more appropriate to retract it first pending an investigation. I don't know how much of this is going to live on, but I do kind of think that like the, the idea of like removing it from the internet, but preserving it as a PDF is a practice that we'll probably see repeated by other outlets in the future. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I, I had not heard that one before. But the whole, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I think if you've published the story, if you have put your magazine's weight behind the story and then these things come up, you know, you're probably not going to do a retraction right away when there are questions, especially if it's about the size of hockey rinks or whatever it is, right? You're going to say, I hope there were just a couple of details that were off here. We can correct them. We can contain the damage and we can move on. That That is, I think, their first instinct in this case. There are a couple issues I want to talk to you about here, though. One is like the Atlantic is also the website slash magazine that published Jeffrey Goldberg's article about Trump and the military back in September. Right. A very, very high wire article that relied on anonymous sources. So you're telling me the same magazine that published this article full of anonymous sources, this very important story about Trump and the military, then blows it by publishing a story about youth sports with anonymous sources that is from Ruth Shalit Barrett. You got to be kidding me. I just, that, that those two things exist at the same magazine is mind-blowing to me. Like the first, and it takes the idea of anonymous sources with utmost seriousness. The second just does not and risk blowing credibility on something like that with that author. I just don't get that. The other is this idea of why you commissioned the piece to begin with. So she left journalism mostly in the 90s. She has come back a couple of times. She wrote for L. She wrote for Vulture. The Atlantic apparently was satisfied that she was now rehabilitated. I don't know if that's the right word and could write for them. So there is to me this whole separate issue of journalistic forgiveness, that if somebody has done something in the past, do they deserve a chance to come back? To which a lot of people, of course, would say, well, (laughs) we never had a chance to break in to begin with. So why does she have X number of chances to come back? But it's an interesting question, right? And by the way, there's no right answer. The answer is, is the magazine going to commission the piece or not? We've seen lots of people come back from stuff. But I guess it is, you know, to me, and the one thing I'd like to see more of from The Atlantic or from Jeffrey Goldberg or from whoever is, what was, how, what was the thinking when this piece got published? Why did, you, why did you commission this story to begin with? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I th- I don't know that we'll ever see that, and I think that's what you sp- you sort of feel a lot of it through a you know novel length editor's note. Probably there's a, there's some degree to which people are they're trying to kind of reconstruct what they were thinking, you know. Now, like I said, I think we can. I, I, you know, you're you're absolutely spot on about the the 
what the damage that it does to the other writers there, to, the Jeffrey Goldberg story, to everything else. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I think, like I said at the top, I think we can both be kind of sympathetic to like not knowing everything that's going on and not and not everyone signing off on that. But this is just beyond the pale in so many ways. How you're not out in front of this before it even goes. I mean, I guess I guess if they were out in front of it, I don't know that it would have ever been published to begin with. That's that's the whole thing. It's 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 tough. It's tough. Just in terms of you know second chances and all that, it's tough. And 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 I think and it's it's a, it's a, just a sad situation. We got a call earlier today, David, from an actual political correspondent, a real one, Mark Leibovich of the New York Times. He was calling from the trail, I think it's fair to say, sitting outside a Starbucks in South Carolina. So you're going to hear a little road noise in the background here. But folks, that's the sound of authenticity. Here's Mark Leibovich. All right, Mark Leibovich is here. Chief National Correspondent of the New York Times Magazine, author of This Town and Big Game, occasional sports writer, calling in from the campaign trail. Are you allowed to say where you are, Mark? Uh, sure. I'm in Rock Hill, South Carolina, which is, um, I think it's like maybe a half hour from Charlotte. I hope it's a half hour from Charlotte, because I'm hoping to catch a flight out of this area tonight. Are you taking the pulse the of the nation in a, in a David Broder kind of way? I'm taking the pulse of um, hotels. I, I've actually been driving a lot, and I like driving, but I don't know about a, as a pulse-taking mechanism. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, there's like some actually there's a really good clump of Senate races in South Carolina, uh, two of them in Georgia, and one in North Carolina. So it's good to hit like a whole bunch of stuff. And two of the three are like presidential swing states, so there's, it's pretty fertile hunting down here. Let me ask you about campaign coverage. You are a guy who is happy to write a think piece from your desk occasionally, but you're mostly a guy who prefers to be with his subjects. Let us say within six to eight feet of your subjects. What is the biggest way the pandemic has affected writing about this campaign? It, it's been terrible, to be honest with you. It's, um, you know, there's not a lot of, I mean, campaign reporting is being done a lot from home, like a lot of other kind of work. And unfortunately, I, you know, I'm trapped. I've been grounded for as much as anyone. I've probably managed three or four trips, like once to the sort of, uh, I guess, the zombie Democratic convention. And I did a quick trip to Wisconsin. I did a quick trip like down to South Carolina. I mean, I've done a few things, but it's hard. I mean, no one wants to be anywhere near you. I mean, the Biden events are like 10, like socially distanced dignitaries and it's all streamed and, and, um, yeah, if you go to a Trump rally, you could get sick. So, I mean, there's all kinds of built-in hazards at Trump rallies to begin with, especially if you're a journalist. But, um, you know, now you can actually catch a virus. So that's no fun. Uh, so, yeah, it, it hasn't been optimal. I mean, in, in, for all the obvious reasons and also some specifically journalistic reasons. I think about this all the time with sports writing and the closed locker rooms that that they're sort of dealing with. Because there's a question of, access and things like that. And then there's a separate question of what do readers actually miss? So what do you think readers have actually missed out on during this campaign? I mean, I guess serendipity. There's just, there's a lot of serendipity that a reporter or a good reporter can just stumble upon by being on the road and by being around a candidate and just sort of being on a bus. Right. And just, especially if you're irreverent, especially if you're willing to make some, you know, boys on the bus uncomfortable, like kind of enemies or something. It, it, it's, you just find a lot of cool stuff, which as a sports writer would in a locker room, probably in a, ho in a maybe in a hotel, in a bar or something. And that's sort of not 
what 2020 is all about. So there's that. I also, though, I, I think that there, there might be some positive takeaway from this because you do realize that there's a lot of very mindless travel, a lot of you know press box sitting, a lot of file center sitting. Um, and, and I'm going to guess that for as much as sports writers have missed being in the locker room just for their professional, like not, you know, what they haven't been able to get, there's probably some relief too, because there's a whole lot of boilerplate, boilerplate that gets, um, that gets disseminated there and, and just a lot of bad habits get reinforced. So, you know, in a way it sort of forces you to get creative, but at the same time, you can't really go out and be part of the world as much as you would want to be. I saw that your colleague Asted Hernan tweeted this recently. I don't think 2020 blew up campaign reporting writ large, but really sunk the dumbest parts of campaign reporting. Is there a particular dumb thing you've seen less of this year? Yeah, I actually tend to agree with us there. I think conventions are by definition dumb. I, I think they can be done in one night, maybe maybe two nights. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of dinners and stupid parties and like awards banquets that, that none of us are going to miss. Uh, there's a whole bunch of press planes that you just sort of, you just sort of bread, you you become dependent. You become dependent on, on the candidate, on the campaign, on each other. Um, again, it's the same sort of boys on the bus, um, sort of trap that, that we read about 50 years ago almost. So I, I think that, that a lot of that is, is there. I mean, I think, that let's see besides conventions i mean i also just think that campaign rallies in general have a real sort of pounding sameness about them and um you know they're original and and you can learn a lot but you don't need maybe as many of them as as we had been covering so um you know maybe it's made us more efficient maybe it's made us more creative or theoretically it could going forward it strikes me that washington journalism has been built over the last four years at the Times, at the Post, at all the TV stations to cover a president who makes news minute by minute, all day, sometimes all night. So if we have President Biden starting in January, how will Washington journalism change to deal with that? That's um, a question we've been asked a lot and we've been asking a lot. And of course, you know, we, we don't want to prejudge the results tomorrow or this week or this month or whenever it is. Um, I do think that every time people assume something is going to be boring, it often isn't. Um, I think sort of by definition, there are a couple things that, that will make it interesting. One, I mean, the country's still going to be in the middle of a big crisis economically, uh, pandemically. I mean, this thing is not going away anytime soon. And either is Trump, even if he loses. I mean, Trump is going to be a, you know, he's going to be a ubiquitous force. And this is what he does. And, and I think I'm pretty fascinated personally about what's going to become of the Republican Party if they lose and if they lose decisively. Um, so I think there'll be there'll be plenty of stories to write. Um, you know, I also don't think it's necessarily unhealthy to have a little bit of normalcy imposed on not so much journalism because we're always evolving, but but journal but normalcy imposed on just um, how, how we think about what's important and how we think about what affects people's lives and um, you know just I think maybe in some ways the metabolism of journalism will 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 go to a more healthy place, but who knows? I mean, I I, I think that there's also going to be a PTSD of, from the Trump years that are going to have all kinds of components. I mean, maybe legal components and investigatory components and what does the future look like? I mean, so I think there'll be plenty. Uh, I don't think Trump's going to go away, but uh, I guess we'll see. I mean, it's just, it feels very uncertain right now, which is hardly an original thought. 
In uh, November 2018, you identified a micro genre of Washington journalism called the Trump mood story, where we write that Trump is privately fuming or increasingly isolated. The mood piece, right? Yeah. Well, this was this R.I.P. to the to the mood piece. If Trump loses, is there is there such a thing as a Biden privately fuming piece that at least can occur at the same rate? I don't think there will be a Biden analog mood piece. I mean, but having said that, um, you know, Trump was just so singular, I hope. Um, and I, I have a feeling Trump's moods will continue to be a sub genre of this story. And I, you know, I, I think that um, I do think that mood journalism has its limits and should be done judiciously. And I think, um, you know, certain people have gone overboard over the last few years. Uh, so hopefully that will uh, that will come back under control in some way. What's it like to interview Joe Biden? It's a good question. I've only done it a few times. He's over the years. I mean, he's sort of as you'd expect. He's performing a lot. He is he's very uh, solicitous. He's also pretty easy to get to make him kind of reactive and emotional in some ways. He, he loses his temper. Um, a little easier than most politicians do, which can be interesting because he becomes more revelatory. Um, you know, he can be tough to listen to at times because he does ramble on, as we all know. But he also um, will certain will say certain things that, that are really pretty shocking and surprising and, and actually very human. So, um, you know, I wouldn't pretend to, to think that that he is a raw figure in any way and, and doesn't fully know that that we are judging, you know, that when he's in an interview, he is fully being uh, scrutinized but um you know i i think he's less uh he's less controlled than like obama is he's he's more um you know he's more flawed i guess than than a lot of sort of plastic politicians are so i guess in that sense it's refreshing do we i think after four years we have a pretty well-developed sense of what trump thinks of the media do you have a sense of what joe biden thinks of the media you know, it's interesting. I think in, in some ways they're similar, which seems kind of weird on its face. But I think that they both pay a great deal of attention to what the what the media says about them. And they're both in, in their own ways, extremely insecure, uh, very status conscious and, and both desperately want to be taken seriously as like the man. Right. So, uh, you know, Trump hating the media is I mean, it's kind of ridiculous in some ways because he, 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 he thinks like probably about 90 percent of his time his waking time in, in the office is thinking about what the media is saying about him, what the, especially the, the mainstream media is saying about him. Um, and I think that arises from a lot of the same insecurities and, and maybe, you know, inferiority complex that, that maybe drive Biden to some degree. So uh, they both pay attention. And that's, I guess, all you can ask. As an observer of Washington, D.C., which you are from time to time or really all the time, did Trump change Washington, do you think, in any way? Yeah, I think he did. I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, I think uh, in some ways for the worse and in some ways for the better, I, I think for the worse. Well, I, I think he I do sort of subscribe to the idea that that he took the sort of lizard brain extreme of the Washington personality, someone who's always operating, someone who's always getting got an angle to work, someone who might be, you know, very, um, you know, I, I guess it, it might be a little bit social, you know, 
it might have some like um, moral relativism uh, playing at all times. So I, I think that that he is like a logical extension of a lot of the cynicism that's driven Washington for years. Um, I think for better, it's it's been a great sort of fertile few years for good journalism. Um, there's been some great investigatory stuff. There's been some great beat stuff. Um, you know, he does give you a lot to work with, and his aides, you know, leak like like we all know. There are a lot of disgruntled um, former White House people and cabinet people. So that that's been fun. Um, but I also think that that on a kind of psychic level, um, he has in some ways made people more cynical, but also made people less cynical. And I know that a lot of my colleagues who, you know, even including myself, who are professional cynics, um, have become, I think, much more um, earnest, I guess, about the American institutions that we hold dear and the journalistic you know, institutions and, and just norms and just sort of how we would hope that a country would run and the things we would care about and the people we would care about. So, um, you know, I think it's a mixed bag, but um, I'm hoping that uh, there are lessons that, that we at some point can reflect on and, and maybe get better from. What do we think about journalists becoming more earnest? Because I, I like the cynicism of journalists. You know, that's that's one of my favorite oh, yeah. things about them. But but yeah, but at no. some point it becomes overpowering, right, and guiding to a point where it's so. yeah. You know. I actually, to be honest with you, Brian, I, I I also like cynicism. I mean, I I don't I don't intend you. to stop being cynical. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not wishing for earnest journalism because I think we would all die of boredom. But I am wishing for some kind of some something between um, cynicism and nihilism. And I, you know, maybe we can recalibrate the. It's a lot of isms going on. Maybe we can recalibrate. You know, sort of where the where the happy medium is between being credulous and being earnest and and also just sort of taking this seriously and maybe restoring a seriousness to the pursuit of politics and government and public service and journalism that you know maybe we've lost over the last few years it's funny with trump because at one point as you say he hates the press he you know heaps ridicule on the press and at the same time does he he makes journalists feel important i think in a way oh, yeah. that maybe no other president has done in a quite a long time. Is that fair to say? Uh, maybe. I mean, I think he, he, he loves humiliating journalists. He loves putting journalists in danger, it seems. Um, I, I think um, I would hope journalists feel important, but I think that, that people, because I think yeah, obviously our role is important, but I also think a lot of people have spent a whole lot of time being very scared the last few years, but both physically scared, but also, you know, scared of missing like the next goofy story that drives a whole lot of attention and a whole lot of mind share in this business. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in some ways it's been such a sprint. I don't know if people have actually had time to take stock of what their import is in the scheme of things. And I think like people working in this government, uh, Trump has a way of just blocking out the sun. And I think that that's true of journalists, too. I mean, yes, to some degree, you know, maybe you break a big story and maybe you're like the, the, the star of the week. But, um, you know, Trump's always going to move on to the next thing. And he's always going to um, just sort of eat the next news cycle quickly enough. So that's not a lot of time to take stock in anything. So he gives you the opportunity to be the star of the day. But then the problem is there's going to be another star tomorrow and another star and another star. And you have to keep stay on the treadmill. Yeah, and then being a star of the day, I mean, it means you're automatically going to be like getting threats from the other half of the country, right? So, I mean, depending on whether who you've pissed off or who you're perceived as being on the wrong side of. So there's a whole lot of stress that goes with, um, you know, a lot of the things that, that, that journalists sort of value as part of their job and, and what, you know, what, what means they're doing a good job. 
Let me ask you about a few characters you've written about over the years. You wrote a Chris Christie profile a while back that memorably mm. began with him eating a plate of nachos. I, 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 yes. I have not been able to shake that image from my mind for some reason. <laughs> Give me Chris Christie's arc during this administration, starting with being an early Trump supporter all the way to getting COVID. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to say the, the arc has taken him very deep, you know, into some serious health issues. I mean, I think Christie is a classic cynic, too. I mean, he he basically did a very kind of old fashioned political kind of a Jersey thing, which is you lose and then you sort of you just sort of like attach yourself as early as possible to the brightest shining star and hope you can become a player. Um, and then. You know, so Christie was like, he just wants to be relevant. So he was really relevant there for a while. He never got a job. He got screwed over many times. And then he kind of wrote a quasi-ish truth-telling book and became a quasi-ish truth-telling commentator on ABC. But he never really did it in a way that would piss off um, Trump. He, he would piss off certain people in the administration. He would piss off, you know, Jared. Or, he, you know, he, he would, but he would never, he, he was always just too scared to, I think, get you know, just to get on the wrong side of the president. So, um, look, I mean, Christie, I think, has probably eaten a whole lot of dignity um, over the last few years. And uh, maybe he thinks there's something in it for him. But, uh, you know, I can't imagine he wouldn't have a few regrets. And I hope, you know, I would imagine he also doesn't love the idea that he got COVID in this maskless environment. But, yeah, I, I don't know if we'll ever hear from him again. I assume we will. I just don't know in what setting. Another one who I saw on the stump last night is Marco Rubio, who you've also written about. We have Marco yeah. Rubio being destroyed, as it were, by Chris Christie back in New Hampshire in 2016, and now cheering on the Trump bus intimidation stuff and making Sleepy Joe jokes. What do you make of his yeah. journey? I, I saw that clip of him like making the Sleepy Joe joke. I mean, I thought it looked kind of pathetic. I mean, he, he seemed um, really like the kid trying to impress the bigger kids and the cool group, um, the cool group being everyone at that rally in Florida and Trump being the cool guy. Um, you know, uh, with Rubio, I, I assume there's some political calculation thinking that uh, it might be easier for him to get reelected in two years. He might run for president again after Trump's out of the way. But to me with Rubio, he does look like a kid trying too hard. Uh, at least he does when he sort of is in the mode of, trying to be the uh the kind of great the, sort of the sidekick bully or the sort of like supporting bully i mean christie's in some ways the same way um and you just know that that privately and and even in the past they have they have been very disparaging of, of trump and probably are now privately too um so you know look it's it's very easy to be cynical because i think it's actually appropriate in this case we were talking about this earlier on the podcast but let us say that trump loses tomorrow night or one Wednesday morning or whatever, but is not willing to concede the election. Isn't there an amazing narrative Washington journalism lane here for a Republican, an established Republican to get in front of a TV camera and say the election is over? And who might that be? Well, um, I don't, you know, first of all, Whoever does it is late. I mean, I mean, I, there are a couple of options. Or, I mean, Mitch McConnell could. I mean, he would have standing, and that he'll probably take some Senate people with him. I mean, I think they're all advantaged in some ways, and that their own elections will be over, and either they're going to win or lose. So they're going to either not have to worry about voters for six years or maybe ever again if they lose. Um, Mitt Romney, 
is, I mean, his, his power here is minimal because he's been off the reservation for a long time. Uh, the MAGA people hate him anyway. It's unclear what other Republicans are going to listen to him. Uh, George W. Bush is the one that keeps coming up. Uh, he has been pretty quiet, um, clearly doesn't have much use for, for Trump, and um, certainly parents didn't and jeb doesn't uh if he speaks up and says look it's time to, to come together and put this behind us it'll probably carry some weight but also at the same time you can see trump and his people immediately just saying yeah you know this is the status quo they just want to like you know win this for the club and like get back to their, their cushy lives and they don't care about you so yeah i mean unfortunately i mean one of the very unfortunate things about this is that the republican party doesn't really have any honest brokers right now um that could stand up to him to, to trump and those who who did and who have tried uh, have not come out very well um so we'll see uh, I, i'm skeptical that it would do much we don't have cousin sal here to do the odds but i would think george w bush says congratulations president biden first yeah. uh, we could get it we could get a hundred to one or you know maybe a 200 to one on that one you know, I would I would think that that is a, um, the, you know, the congratulatory call from the ex-presidents. And I guess there's only one living ex-Republican president, so it would be all Bush. Uh, it's going to be an important indicator. And, and also, obviously, the, the leaders of the Senate and the House, the Republican leaders of the Senate and the House. Um, so, you know, we'll, we will see. I, I think um, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the Biden people or Biden himself hasn't reached out and said, look, I know you can't endorse me. I know that you want to stay out. Um, and yeah, he could have said this to McConnell. He could have said it to um, Lindsey Graham. He could have said it to, uh, to to Bush or whoever. But and that just say, look, I mean, but I think I might need you when the time comes, when the country, if, if the shit really hits the fan after the election, you know, I would ask you to, you know, maybe step up then. So maybe that's been the ask. Maybe that will be the ask. Um, but I, I do think that Again, I think it could be minimally useful, but it could be useful. And I don't know how many how many um, how many cards there are going to be to play at that point because we're going to be so lurching into any number of different directions starting, uh, you know, in a couple of days. At the least, it's a great prop bet. Will George Bush call Joe Biden before Donald Trump does? I, I think. I think that's pretty good. It is great. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, maybe this is actually true. I mean, you can imagine Vegas has all kinds of prop bets going on, right? I mean, this is like there there is a kind of Super Bowl vibe around this, which is a ridiculous thing to say, and I'll probably catch some heat for it because it makes it sound like, yeah, this is frivolous, this is a game, and of course it's not, it's real life. But, I mean, say you're in like um, in like a Super Bowl city, right, or in the city or town or, or state where a Super Bowl team is based, and yeah, everyone in that area is going to be talking about this game that day, and, and much of America will be anyway. And that's sort of true of this election. It's like, take every bit of rooting interest everyone has had in their team for the last few years and sort of collect it all into what tomorrow is, and you have a contest. Unfortunately, the context, contest is very, very frighteningly for keeps and could have some really ugly results. And um, again, I mean, unlike sports, there's there's not a referee that everyone trusts and there's not a uh, scoreboard that everyone trusts and that you can, it's just not an objective process at this point. So you would hope it is, but uh, we will see, you know, we're going to see what it looks like. All right. You can read Mark Leibovich in the New York Times Magazine and the Times proper. We can only hope the Patriots' abject suckiness will bring him back to sports writing someday. Mark, thanks for being on the press box. Sports can wait, Nick. It's a wasted year anyway.
<laughs> All right, Mark. Thanks very much. All right, it's time for David Shoemaker Guesses, the strained pun headline. Thursday's headline about Trump's busted Omaha, Nebraska rally was Your Fired Festival. Our pal Joseph Bien Khan writes, My broken brain went to Alta Presidents Mont. So, like all the president's men in Altamont, Alta yeah. Presidents Mont for the strain pun headline. Today's headline, David, comes from C.S. Mirasol. It's from the New York Times. I'll give you the tweet. Octopuses can taste what their arms touch. Octopuses can taste what their arms touch. And I'm also going to get you started on the headline. When it comes to octopuses, what was the New York Times's strained pun headline? When it comes to octopuses, uh, um, an arm's reach, good taste. Uh, taste flavor, is a good word. Flavor, taste. Um, Remember, they're tasting with their arms. I know. That's a touch of taste. Uh, that, uh, and maybe think about an octopus's arms. Suction cups. Mm, mm. <laughs> I have no idea. A taste from the cup. A cup. Uh, 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 All right, we're going to let him off the hook. When it comes to octopuses, taste is for suckers. <laughs> taste is for Oh, that's pretty suckers. good. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production magic by Steve Allman. Tomorrow night, David. Election night. Our plan is when we have a winner, or if it becomes fairly obvious we're about to have a winner, we're going to press record and do an instant reaction podcast. When is that going to happen? We don't know, but we're going to hang in there, and we might even do a we don't know yet edition if it goes late enough into the night. One thing we do know, there will be no going to sleep because we've come too far. So watch our Twitter feed at the press box pod, and we will give you the high sign when we start recording. Join us as we scare the shit out of liberals and offer more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. Later, Brian. 